All right, with all that being said, if you would kindly turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. You guys ready to get into the Word? Yeah, okay. Some of you guys are excited. I'm excited. This is my third go. This morning at 8.30, I got a frog in my throat, and so uh, that disrupted that service. This one, I I feel pretty strong, so I think we're going to be good. So we're going to be starting in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 12. And as you're turning there, let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. Thank you, Father, for your promises that we've already sung about collectively today. That we know that you are faithful. That you are faithful to us. You're faithful to your children. You're faithful to your people. Your faithfulness has no end. And that the promises you've communicated to us through your word, Father, we know that those will hold us. That we can live within them, live underneath of them, allow them to pour into our hearts, Father, so we could live with courage in this world and share your gospel with those who need to hear it. So, Father, today as we open up your word and start this new short series, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would remove distractions from our minds, remove the concepts and ideas and Uh, different issues perhaps that we've been processing over the last few days, remove all the agenda items we have on our calendars for the afternoon, and we would simply hear from you. In your name we pray, amen. Recently at a local evangelical gospel preaching church, a Middle Eastern man was exercising in the empty church parking lot because it provided a big open space for him to run. He lived in a condo nearby and decided to bring a stereo into the parking lot so he could play some music while he worked out in the middle of the day. A friend of mine who serves there walked by and struck up a quick conversation with him. And the Middle Eastern man asked if it was okay if he worked out in the parking lot. My friend said to him, sure, I don't see any problem with that at all. Good job. I probably need to work out today too, so keep it up. Uh, Keep going. And went on his way. Uh, The Middle Eastern man stopped him and said, well, I was asking because there's a woman in the church who's kind of been staring at me funny for a little while, and I just wanted her to know, like, I live, you know, right here, and I'm, I'm exercising. Well, the woman was a regular attendee who saw the guy put his stereo down and start running back and forth, and what was her conclusion? I think he has a bomb. So she didn't try to speak with him. She didn't get a friend to go check it out or go with him to check it out. She made a decision basically based on his gender and the color of his skin, and she called the police. A few minutes later, they show up. They have a conversation with him, and they see what's happening. They left just a short time after that discussion. I wonder if he's ever dared to work out in that church's parking lot again. I wonder if he had ever visited that church. I wonder if he ever will. I wonder what it feels like to walk outside of your house, play some music, work out, and have people wonder whether you're planting a bomb in the middle of the day in a parking lot full of video cameras. I don't know, and most of you don't either, because it's never happened to me. Nothing even remotely close. What thoughts flood your mind when you hear this story? Maybe you think, I would have done the exact same thing as the woman. She was doing the responsible thing. 
Maybe you think, I would have explored it more before making that call. She racially profiled him. Maybe you think, I wouldn't have even noticed him or paid any attention to him. Maybe you think, I would have taken him out a bottle of cold water and said, good job, keep it up. Did you know that it's been 50 years since the 12th Street riot in Detroit? For those of you unfamiliar with what happened, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, very early on July 23rd, 1967, a confrontation between the police and patrons of an after-hours bar on the corner of Rosa Parks Boulevard and Claremont Avenue became one of the most destructive and deadly riots in the history of the United States. When all was said and done, 43 dead, 1,189 people injured, over 7,000 arrests, some of them with people in their 80s and 90s, and one of a four-year-old. More than 2,000 buildings completely destroyed. A new movie is coming out detailing the riots this August, August 4th, actually. The movie's simply called Detroit. And I wonder if it will bring healing or just remind us of the wounds that still haven't completely healed. I wonder if it will be helpful or hurtful. It's been 50 years, but the economic, political, racial, and religious tensions that exist today are palpable. Palpable. And the issues are complex. From Baltimore to Dallas to Chicago to Detroit, from Iraqi Shia Muslims to Yemeni Sunni Muslims living in Dearborn, we know that race relations have been on a downward spiral. It's abundantly clear and obvious, at least it is to me, and I'm sure to many of you, that these types of stories are creating incredible cultural and global tension right now, wouldn't you say? You guys awake? Here's another headline of a black man being shot and killed by an officer filled with controversy. There's another caption of a police officer that was killed while trying to keep his community safe. Here's another bomb going off outside of a concert venue. There's another group of terrorists stabbing as many as they can to further their cause. Here's another act of hatred. There's another demonstration of bigotry. Here's another movement. There's another movement, a counter movement. Here's another story and another story and another story and another and another and another. Who's tired of all the stories? I'm tired of the stories. And yet this is our world. How could something so beautifully designed go so wrong? How could people shaped in the image of God who have been marked with inexpressible value treat one another as if certain types of people have less value or no value at all? Today we begin a three-week series entitled United We Stand. Several months ago, let me share with you the inspiration for the series. Several months ago, several urban and suburban pastors, even some rural pastors, got together to pray and discuss the issue of racial reconciliation, being that this is the 50th anniversary of the 12th Street Riot. And this morning, as a result of those conversations and those prayer meetings, something that Woodside's been a part of for months, churches all over southeast Michigan, black, white, Hispanic, and otherwise, are preaching this message from this passage of Scripture. 
Why? Because as a collective church, as the church, as followers of Jesus, from every tribe and tongue and nation, we want to remind one another in Southeast Michigan what difference the gospel makes for the people of God. And so that's what we're doing this morning. That's what we're beginning. We want to really focus in on this idea that we must embrace our unity in Christ so that we display God's glory to a disunited world. That is who we are in Christ. How many of you know today that you are more unified with the Pakistani Christian than you are with your agnostic cousin? Do you really understand that today? I think for many of you, maybe this issue is something you've kind of shoved into a closet or maybe you don't think much about, but through this short series, we want to bring it out in the open and really see what God's word has to say about it. Because when we think about this, when we think about our Christian brothers and sisters, what is going on in their lives, whether they're in Christ in Pakistan or North Korea or Syria or India, it's personal to us. Why? Because they're part of the family. And we're part of that same family. And certainly what is happening in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Southeast Michigan, from the spirit of Detroit all the way up here to Blake Cider Mill or even beyond is personal because they are part of our local family. They're just a quick ride up or down the street. And what is happening most intimately in the lives of our brothers and sisters in this room that we're here this morning is personal because this is our nuclear spiritual family. This is one specific household within the many households that make up the household of the church. And so this is our nuclear family. What does it mean then to embrace our unity in Christ? What does it mean? Embrace doesn't mean, you know what, all these churches and all these people, we just need to get together and just hug it out. We just need to hug it out and say we love each other, and, and then it'll all be okay. No, Paul gives us three answers to that question in this text. What does it mean to embrace our unity in Christ? What's involved in that? Let me just share it with you this morning from this text. Look at verse 11 as we start. Therefore, so based on chapter 1 and everything he said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Basically, Paul's making a distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews. A Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. So the Jews that made up the Ephesian church and the Gentiles that made up that Ephesian church. He says to them, remember, he's speaking now to the Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What does it mean to embrace our unity in Christ? First, it means we embrace the way in which we have been unified. Because clearly here, when we look at verses 11 and 12, we see trouble. We see a downward spiral of depravity. We see people separated from God. Now, this letter, Ephesians, is very simple to follow. It's divided very cleanly into two parts. Part one, Paul spends three chapters painting a breathtaking picture, really, of the church's position in Christ, focusing on doctrine. 
Part two, Paul spends three chapters explaining what our response to who we are in Christ should look like in the church. So three chapters on our position. Here's what is true. Three chapters on our practice. Here's how you should live in light of that truth. That's what he does here. Now, Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome around A.D. 60, and he wrote it to encourage the church in Ephesus to continue in their faithful and loving walk in Christ, and he did so by explaining their glorious position and privileges that they all share through their faith in Jesus. Now, why would Paul need to write a letter focusing on unity so much, focusing on their position and and privilege collectively on focusing on the privilege and the position that the Jews have as well as the Gentiles. Why would he need to do that? Because they lived in a bitterly racist society. So often I think we see the world today and we're like, man, this is the worst it's ever been. (laughs) No. No, there's stories throughout all of human history where we hear this and we pick it up. Let me just share with you a little bit about the Jews and the Gentiles. A quick study of the history of the ancient world reminds us that none of our social and racial tensions today are more intense, at least they're equated to the intensity, that the separation uh, that existed between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times, these people hated each other. The Jews... Let's start with them. They believed the Gentiles were literally created to fuel the fires of hell. That is what they said. You were made to be wood for the fires of hell, is how they would describe them. They would often say the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was illegal for a Jew to help a Gentile woman in childbirth because that would mean bringing another heathen child into the world. If you help that woman in childbirth, you could no longer worship. You couldn't go to church. The Gentiles, according to the Jews, the Jews would call them dogs. Now, this isn't like our concept of dogs where like we have our dog and the dog has, we spend more money on our dogs than our kids. I mean, they have the, the fluffy pillows and the fancy beds and they're eating a whole 30 organic dog food. And when we go on vacation, they go to doggy vacation, which is probably more expensive than our vacation. And so we, we treat them so well. When, when they called them dogs, when Jews called Gentiles dogs, this was a curse. This was a destructive term. You know the words in our culture that are explosive between races. This was one of those. It was explosive. Now, the Gentiles, they weren't any better. Plato, the Greek philosopher, said that the barbarians, that's anyone, by the way, who's not a Greek. He called anyone who's not a Greek a barbarian. Anyone who's not a Greek, he said of them, they were enemies by nature, You're just my enemy by your nature because your nature is not my nature. You're of a different nature because you're not Greek. And so that's what Plato would say. Now, the Roman historian Livy said, the Greeks wage a truceless war against people of other races. In other words, we're not going to make peace. We're just going to kill them. Any Jew was viewed in their culture by the Gentiles as a homicidal enemy. What's that sound like? Basically a terrorist. 
of the human race. So it's easy to understand that many of the Jews looked at themselves as having, they viewed themselves as having perceived spiritual privilege. Privilege. We are the chosen ones. We are God's covenantal people. We were given God's law and God's prophets and God's protection. This was their attitude. They basically believed because of who my parents are and because of the nation I was born into and because of where I'm from, I am better than you. Racism. We're near to God. We're the spiritual elitists. We're God's children. Or so they thought. If the Jews viewed themselves as having spiritual privilege, then how do you think they viewed the Gentiles? If they viewed themselves as having spiritual privilege, they viewed the Gentiles as having spiritual poverty, racism. And it had made its way into the church. Perceptions and prejudices are not quickly changed. So Paul points out that the Gentile Christians, they were religiously disadvantaged. That's what he talks about here in this text. He said they were separated from Christ. The Messiah was the king of the Jews. He said they were alienated from the citizenship of Israel, God's chosen and anointed people. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, covenants given to Israel through Abraham, Moses, David. They had no hope. Greek philosophy and religion had no future golden age, nothing that they were moving towards. They had no hope. It was all just history. They were without God in the world, no knowledge of the true God, even though they were surrounded by a pantheon of gods. The downward spiral of racism. But then came verse 13. But now in Christ... I'm grateful for those words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But now in Christ, but now in Christ, but now in Christ, everything's changed. Everything's different. We, we are not born racist. We know that. Children are completely colorblind. Racism is taught. It is taught. And it is caught. Now, the temple in their day that Herod built in Jerusalem had a huge wall. So when Paul wrote these words, the Jews and the Gentiles understood this story. There was a huge wall in Herod's temple. And the wall separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the temple. And on that wall, written in Latin and Greek, you can actually see parts of it today if you go to Israel. It's in various museums. It says this in the inscription, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You walk through this wall, you go through this door, you walk in this space, we kill you. And it's legal. And that's how it is. This was their day. And what is Paul saying? Please hear this, friends. He's saying, 
The cross of Christ breaks down the wall of hostility, the wall of disunity. And the Jew and the Gentile have now become, as that wall has been broken down by Jesus, they have now become one people, the church through Christ. The cross, it turns out, was stronger than their sin that separated from God, but it was also stronger than the sin that separated them from each other. So it broke down the wall that made a way for peace with God and with each other. Racism is a complex problem. In a relativistic world where everyone has their truth, and so their truth describes the situation, it makes unity and racist, uh, racist uh, tension like a complex issue. But at least for me, when I come across this text, how many of you are grateful that the word of God gives simple truths to complex problems? I mean, it's simple truths to complex problems. What's, what's the complex problem? Well, we see it, all this tension. It was existing here in the church in Ephesus. What's the answer? Simple, the cross. That's the answer. The gospel, the cross. All we see through verse 12 is this downward spiral of spiritual division. But I'm so grateful in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ, now in Christ, everyone who was far off, even those of you who were near, but you were really far off, even though you thought you were near, everyone has been brought near. Regardless of your tribe, your culture, your kindred, everyone is part of the same family by the blood of Christ. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, according to Ephesians chapter 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Guys with me? Yeah, you can speak back. It helps me out. We have peace with God and peace with each other only through the cross of Jesus Christ. The church family then does not work for unity. We work from unity. Not for it, but from it. We don't work to get unity. We recognize in the church in Christ we are already unified. That means that we do not have unity with each other. Those moments in our lives when we do not have unity with one another, you need to understand this according to what Paul is saying here. And by this, he means when we don't have unity with each other, and by each other, he means everyone, everyone who says they're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that we are denying the work of the cross. There is no room for prejudice or any form of elitism for those who are in Christ. There is no such thing. That wall has been torn to shreds and destroyed. What does it mean to embrace our unity in Christ? First, it means we need to understand the way in which we have been unified. We have been unified. The way was through Jesus, through the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection that made reconciliation possible with God the Father, but also with one another and broke down all those barriers that separate people. This is the way. What about the purpose? Does he give us a purpose for this unity? That's the second point this morning, that we must embrace the purpose of our unity. Look back at verse 14. For he himself, Jesus that is, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So basically what he's saying is he's talking about the ceremonial law of the Jews. That involves circumcision. 
It involves about what you eat. It, it involves uh, how you wash your hands before you would go to worship. It's the ceremonial law of the Jews, not the moral law of God that stands forever. The ceremonial law of the Jews specific for that time and place. And he's saying that that law is abolished. It's gone. There is no such law that exists. All can now come into worship. And here's the purpose, that, so that, it means purpose, it's a purpose clause, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both in two directions he wants to reconcile us, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the other direction, into one body, so God and one another, vertical, horizontal, Bishop John Reed, I heard this story, drove a school bus in Australia that carries whites and aborigines. When he got sick of all their fighting and their racial feuding, one day, far out in the country, he pulled the bus over and said to the white boys, what color are you? They said, white. And he told them, no, you are not white, you are green. Anyone who rides in my bus is green. Now, what color are you? And the white boys all spoke up and said, green. Then he went to the Aborigines and he said, what color are you? And they said, black. And he said, no, you are not black, you are green. And anyone who rides my bus is green. So what color are you? And they said, green. He thought he had solved the problem. Until a few miles down the road, he heard a boy in the back of the bus say, all right, light green on this side, dark green on that side. He had the right idea. What they needed was a new race. But he couldn't pull it off. Jesus pulled it off. How did he pull it off? The death of Christ has created a new humanity. If you read the old church fathers in these first few centuries, what they called it was that the church, this new family brought together from every tribe, every tongue, every language of Jew and Gentile, not Jew anymore, not Gentile anymore, not one race, not a second race. It's a third race. It's a new race. Behold The old has gone. The new has come. We are God's people, the church, this new race. Because of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, vertical peace, and we have peace with each other, horizontal peace, and we become a new humanity. This is one of the purposes of our unity. And some of you here this morning don't have vertical peace, and that's where it starts. Right now, maybe you you haven't realized before that Jesus Christ came to bring you peace with God. That through his life, his death, his resurrection, through his sacrifice, through placing your faith in his atoning sacrifice, that his sacrifice atoned for, covered over your sins, you are made right with God. But it doesn't stop there. And this is one of the big problems within American evangelicalism, that we make our relationship with God a personal thing on the vertical level only. The point is, when you read the scriptures, yes, it's about me having peace with God through faith in Christ, but it is also about me having peace with other followers of Jesus Christ because of our unity in Christ. It's horizontal, sorry, and also vertical. It's both. 
You, you cannot escape this reality from the scriptures. This is really the good news of the gospel. A people of God from every tribe and tongue and language. Paul goes on to say, and he preached, he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. Jesus preached peace with God to the Jewish fishermen, and he preached peace to the Syrophoenician woman. He preached peace to the apostles who sometimes had little faith, and he preached peace to a Roman centurion soldier who had great faith. If we really want to see racial unity and peace, at least within the church, can we start there? If we really want to see it, it is only through preaching the message of peace, the message of the gospel that can do it. There is no other way. There is no other path. There is no other solution. For through him, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We both, we all, Jew, Gentile, we have access through Christ in one spirit to the Father. Here we find the whole Trinity involved. Christ is building his church through the Holy Spirit so that we will have access to God the Father. It's beautiful how it lays it out. Father, Son, Spirit. The purpose of our unity isn't to be a homogenous, uniformed clone army for God. We all know this. The purpose of our unity is to display the unity and glory of God in our distinct yet unified cultures. God isn't colorblind. He, he, he created the races beautifully. The races are beautifully diverse that display his creative and multifaceted glory. So when we can love and serve and fight for the good of those who are different, ethnically speaking, we show the, the good news of Christ is really for all people, not just people who are like us. That, that's the point, that we push them towards that reality. Let's bring it closer to home here for a moment. Now, the peace and reconciliation that Paul is talking about is the peace of the church, not the world. It's between the Jewish, uh, Jewish people and the Gentile people who were together making up the church in Ephesus, and they had these issues that they were sorting out. It's between brother and sister in Christ. It's not between the Christian and the unbeliever in the world. This is relationships that are meant to be unified that exist within the church itself. Now, here's the thing, and I'm sure that some of you here are in this situation. Some of you, some of us, are not at peace and not reconciled with each other. You have reconciliation with God the Father because of faith in Christ, but that, friends, is again not where it ends. The expectation here is that we have it with each other, but maybe you're in a situation where you are not at peace. In your marriage, you are not at peace in your relationships within the people in this family. And while your walls and boundaries are building up, you might believe or be tempted to believe that God is okay with your bitterness and resentment. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer 
your gift. Did you know that peace between brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ is the prerequisite for worship? You cannot pour out love for God when you have such anger for his family. That would be like my daughter telling me how much she loves me while she's telling her brother how much she hates him. It does not work. Daddy, you're so great. Josiah, I can't stand you. Daddy, you're awesome though, but Josiah, I can't stand you. That's not how the family works. That's not how it's made up. That's not how it's meant to function. And when we function like this, friends, that's why the world looks at the church and says, there's no difference. Is this hard? Yes. Am I touching on some soft spots and kind of driving it in there a little bit? Yes. But this is the word of God for us today. And this is what he demands from his church. And we ought to be a people passionately in pursuit of peace with each other in every way we can. What does it mean to embrace our unity in Christ It means we understand the way in which we've been unified. It also means we embrace our purpose. And finally, it means we embrace the results of our unity. Look at verse 19. So then, result, so then. And he's going to give three word pictures. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul gives us three pictures that helps us understand the results of our unity. Three descriptions of the church that help paint this picture of what our unity really looks like and what it means to be in the family of God or part of the kingdom of God or part of the followers or the group of followers of Jesus. The first, he says, is we are God's city. It says fellow citizens, part of God's city. Citizenship meant everything in the first century. Your customs, your friends, your identity was all wrapped up in where you were from and where you belonged. And in Christ, he's saying, we have a new citizenship. We are citizens of a new city. And that means we have a shared language because we're part of the same city. We have a shared language being the gospel. We have a shared heritage that all the disciples who came before us are all of our heritage. We have a shared history. We are part of God's redemptive story. We have a shared allegiance to Christ. We have a shared home in heaven. So we are part of God's city, fellow citizens. He also says we are part of God's family, members of the household of God. Now, being part of a family, a household, is a whole lot more intimate than living in the same city as someone. I can say I'm from Shelby, and you're like, I'm from Romeo, or I'm also from Shelby. That doesn't mean much. But if you say we're actually living in the same house, that's a whole nother measure and a whole nother depth of relationship. It says here, we have all the same father. We have the same adoption. We are brothers and sisters. That changes how we interact with each other. If we are truly brothers and sisters, what does that mean in terms of our responsibility for each other? What does that mean in terms of how we treat one another? What does that mean in terms of our commitment to one another? You can't like get rid of your brothers and sisters. They'll just always be that. It's who they are by blood And in Christ, that that bond runs even deeper according to the word of God. 
So we are family. We are also God's temple, growing in a holy temple, he says. So these are the results of our unity. All of us different, all of us unique, all of us an integral part of the construction plans. Not a piece will be missing. God knew what would make up this temple from before time began, and all of it held together in Christ, the cornerstone. I'm sure all of you have heard the story of the shooting of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida. Who hasn't, right? Afterwards, there was violence and outcry around the country. In Ferguson, Milwaukee, Baltimore, and this weekend, if you've been following the news, in Tulsa. But it didn't happen like that in Sanford. There wasn't a massive demonstration and violence that broke out there like in these other cities. The reason why it didn't happen was because a group of churches, urban and suburban, black, white, and Hispanic, they had developed friendships. And the community leaders said one of the reasons why things didn't go over boiling point in that area is because these churches that had developed friendships, they got together and they said, not here, not here. This will not happen here. And they influence their culture. And they are right now today working to reconcile those cultures together under the banner of the gospel. This is why Woodside got together with pastors from all over our region. And remember, friends, we're one church, 14 locations. We don't all look the same. (laughs) We did this to say we are united in Christ along with our brothers and sisters all across this region and certainly within this room. This is why this summer we are all going, all 14 campuses are going from Woodside, along with the people from various other churches in Southeast Michigan, we're going right back to 12th Street in Claremont. Right back to where those riots started 50 years ago and we're partnering with an organization called Life Remodeled. You'll get all the information next Sunday. And we're going to show a demonstration of the gospel so that hopefully we can also share the gospel. And we're going to do a bunch of things. We'll be cleaning up block after block after block right there near that intersection. And we'll be adopting blocks. We'll be adopting police officers and blessing them. We'll be involved in prayer meetings. We'll be involved in summer literacy programs. And even today, Woodside is looking into, and it's probably going to launch by the fall, a plant of a new campus in Harper Woods, which is near 8 Mile and Kelly Road. There's a lot happening. But all these things that are going to happen that can demonstrate this reality, do you know where it all starts? Right here in this room, with each other. And then it goes out from there. What does it mean to embrace our unity in Christ? It means we understand the way in which we have been unified We've been unified through Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. He's broken down the walls. The barriers are gone. It it means we embrace the purposes of our unity. We are displaying God's glory as God's people collectively to a world that's desperately in need of hearing the gospel. And it means we embrace the results of our unity. We are a city, citizens of heaven. We're a family, brothers and sisters. We're a temple. We're a dwelling place of God, for God, and for his glory. This is who we are. I'm not sure where you are today um, or what your next step is. I'm not sure what's been going on in your heart, what thoughts you have for one another. 
for the broader culture, for some of the things that maybe you've been wrestling with. But I just want to remind all of us as I close this morning that there was a man who came and died for me and for you. And he made reconciliation with God possible, which paved the way to make reconciliation with one another possible. And you know who he was? He was an Arab Jew that we probably would think looked like that terrorist. He was an Arab who we might have called the police on wondering if he put a bomb in the parking lot. And an Arab Jew who doesn't share my story, he doesn't share my color of skin, he's not like me, I didn't grow up like him, he didn't grow up in my neighborhood with the things that I grew up with, with the environment that I grew up with, with the language that I speak in the schools that I attend, in the way that I attend, it was very, everything was different, and this Jewish man saved all of us. And he's brought all of us together in Christ. Unity. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there be any here today, this morning, Lord, that do not feel at peace with you. They feel like they've been wrestling with you. They feel like they've been running from you, but they don't feel at peace with you. I pray that through your word, you'd help them to know that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come and made peace. And that peace can be received through faith. So, Father, would you lead them to salvation through acknowledging, dear God, I have sinned. And I've been part of that story. I've been part of the story where there's hostility to others. And Father, I want to live in peace, first with you and then with others. And Lord, would you forgive me? I place my faith in Jesus, believing he died for me and my sin. For all of us, Lord, help us to know. Help us to know that we have been brought together one family one beautiful family through Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's in his name we pray and all of God's church together this morning said, amen. amen. Would you stand with me? And as you stand, I just want to remind us that when we think about this church family, maybe sometimes you're here and you're thinking, man, that just means more responsibility, more commitment, more stuff to fit into my already packed schedule. That's all wrong, friends. The whole point is we're a family, which means it's not a curse. It, look around the room. It means when you're going through some stuff, you've got some people to help you. That you've got people to come alongside of you, to walk with you, to pray with you. It's a blessing. It's our blessing. It's our family for this season. God might take some of us here and there. Some of us might go to meet them. But for now, this is, this is what we got. And sometimes you got those cousins in the family where you're like, I don't really want to hang out with them. And you got crazy uncles. And that's just kind of how it is. But we're still family. And we're still here for each other with one mission and one purpose, one Father, one God, one baptism, all brought together because
because our sin has been covered by a Jewish Arab man who lived 2,000 years ago. We're grateful for that truth. Let's sing this out together.